You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, everybody. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee. Glad to have you with us for the podcast. Today's audio is from last Sunday morning at the bridge. Daniel and Carla Grenz are longtime and good friends of ours who've been with us kind of from day one. They're involved in missions around the world, also working specifically locally with Luke 18. And on a very busy week in which Daniel and Carla had a bunch of interns from around the world, he took the time to teach for us on Sunday morning. I was very, very grateful. Did a fantastic job as always as he continued on our series, Miracles the Jesus Way. We'll play that for you in just a minute. But let me just say, if you live in the Kansas City area and you're listening to these podcasts and you're waiting for them to come out on a Wednesday or whenever they hit, you don't have to wait, you know. You know, you actually can come here at live. Come worship with us at the bridge. We meet at 1030 a.m. at the Culture House in Olathe. Google it, look at the website, thebridgekc.church, whatever it takes. We're not hard to find, uh, and we're easy to be with. Come, grab a donut, grab some coffee, worship with us, and dive in. This week we are leaning into, I think we're at week six of this series, Miracles the Jesus Way, and I don't have an official title yet. Kelsey has ruled out my unofficial title. She said I can't use it. She said it's not good. I'll share it with you now. Uh, She says, I can't use the title Jesus Cursed, although it's completely accurate in this context. So anyway, if you're wondering what that's all about, see you Sunday morning at the bridge. But for now, Daniel Grenz. Well, welcome. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Welcome to those online. Um, I want to pray one more time and, and just ask the Holy Spirit to move in this place You know, I think just kind of taking a step back and looking at the past really month, but even leading up to that, you know, these past, this season that we're in, there's clearly an increasing of the water level of the Spirit's activity in our midst. And so we want to just invite and give him space to do what he wants to do among us this morning. We love you, Holy Spirit. And we confess that we need you, that we can do nothing apart from you. We ask that as Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will take of what is mine and he will give it to you, that you would take what is within Jesus himself and that you'd release it in our midst this morning. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would touch our hearts deeply, that you'd awaken us, that you'd strengthen us, that you'd come and touch us, even if anybody's in need of a physical touch. Holy Spirit, would you release a weight of glory in our midst this morning? We love you. We honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Mark. And uh, yeah, Randy asked me a few weeks ago if I was going to preach, or if I would. And I said, yeah, it'd be great. I have a story in mind. And, and so he texts me Friday morning. And he's like, are you still good to preach Sunday? And I responded. I'm like, what are you talking about? Um, I just let it hang for a minute just to, you know, I was like, I don't know if he's at his coffee yet. I'm just going to help him wake up. Um, but I'm excited. I'm excited to continue in this series on the miracles of Jesus. I forget how you phrase it. Miracles Jesus' way or something like that. Um, we just finished a three-week training with about 20 college students uh, with Luke 18 uh, the past, this past three weeks, actually all of them just, just left town yesterday. And it was a very intense training, 12 to 15 hours every day. Um, but we saw God move in such phenomenal ways. We, we had the week two, which is about almost two weeks ago now, we had this just a focus on healing and deliverance. And I mean, we were seeing students set free from self-hatred and from just all these heart issues that they'd been dealing with. Um, this past week on Wednesday night, we did a missions night and at the end gave a call for students that were willing and feeling God move in their hearts to say, I will go Lord willing to be a foreign missionary. And 15 out of the 20 students responded to that call. 
it was incredible. And so we had this long ministry time praying over them. And um, one of the girls, Carlo, was actually praying over her, just asking the Lord, Lord, speak a country. Where would you want this one to go? And as she's praying, the Lord speaks to her that he wants her to go to northern Iraq to work among the Kurds and the Yazidis, which if, if you were here a few months ago, Carl and I just got, we, we went on a trip a few months ago to that very region, to a Yazidi refugee camp. Um, so that, I mean, that one just personally was so sweet to my heart. It's like, God, you're answering our prayers for this next generation to live wholeheartedly abandoned to you and to reach the last and the least and the lost with the goodness and the message of Jesus. So it was just such a sweet three weeks. I am going to take a long nap this afternoon. So if you need to call me, my phone's on silent. You can call Randy. I don't think Randy sleeps. He doesn't mind, right? 2 a.m., 3 a.m. Just kidding. Um, but it's, it's, I mean, these past weeks have been so sweet. Even just thinking to the the two weekends in July, and this past Friday, Mike and, and a few other leaders sat down and just kind of processed and unpacked what they felt like the Lord was doing. Um, if, if you were part of those weekends and you're kind of like, what did this all mean? I would encourage you to go listen to the Friday night message. But I, but I think for me, you know, that I'm, I'm watching, you know, Chris read in these incredible prophetic words seeing people get healed, seeing just the Lord really move in people's lives. And for me, my takeaway is, God, I want more. Like, Lord, you did it for them. Do it for me. Lord, you did it for that community. Do it for this community. And, and really this idea that we are being invited not to just sit back as spectators, but there's an invitation to respond that's in front of us. And I want to kind of lean into what that looks like uh, in this story this morning. But, but when we respond with a yieldedness, a reach and a hunger for the Lord, that's where the increased measure of his presence and of our experience of it comes from. And so this morning, we're going to be in Mark 5. We're going we're gonna to do the story of um, Jesus casting out. No, we did that one already. Um, I got to think of a new message. Let's go to the one after that then. <laughs> we're going to be in Mark 5, 21. Uh, Verses 21 to 43. This is one of my favorite stories. Uh, My wife and I were missionaries in China for seven years, and we did these inductive Bible studies with college students there, where we'd get all these students who have no clue about, really about anything, but especially anything spiritual, and we'd just grab a short story and we'd dig into it with them. And we'd say, what do you think this means? What does this show us about who Jesus is? What is this? How does this apply to your life? And this story always had such a, a deep impact on them. So I'm believing for that today. But, you know, thinking about the miracles of Jesus, we, we call them signs and wonders. There's a reason they're called a sign. It's because it's meant to point to something more than just what we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands. Um, again, back in our, in our China days, for our nine-year anniversary, my wife and I took a trip to Beijing. And of course, going to Beijing, we had to go see the Great Wall. So we get to the airport, we rent a car, we drove a few hours. We didn't want to go to the real touristy spot. We wanted to go to the, the rugged part of the wall. So we drove a few hours out and we, we got to the destination. They had this amazing sign that had these really cool lights and it kind of had this this embossed uh, mock-up of the wall. It's just a beautiful sign. And so we're taking pictures of the sign, and, and then we went back. We left. No, I'm just kidding. But, but you know, I'm thinking about that. It's like the sign was beautiful. The sign was amazing. But if we had just gone, taken pictures of the sign, and left, you guys would be like, you were foolish. Like, you're right there. There's something so much bigger for you to see, an invitation to experience something so much greater that the sign is just a small portion of. And for us, when we look at these signs and wonders, these miracle stories, the invitation is to come and look beyond and see what, the, what that sign is pointing to and what the greater of that is. I think in, in Mark 4, after Jesus calms the storm, In verse 41, the disciples, it says they're very afraid and they say to each other, who is this man? Like we read that and it might be like, why didn't you guys understand? Why didn't you get it? 
But I read that and I say, no, that's the response he's after. When we experience, whether it's in the word or in front of our eyes, when we experience this sign and wonder of Jesus, that it would produce in us this cry, who is this man? I want to look at him. I want to study him. I want to know him more. And so this morning, we're going to look at Mark 5, verses 23 to 41. Uh, and I'm titling this, The Healing of Two Daughters. The Healing of Two Daughters. So the context for this, in case you haven't been with us, at the beginning of Mark 5, Jesus crosses to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And he gets there. And before he's out of the boat, there's this wild, demonic demoniac that comes after him. He casts the demons out, um, and, and they go into the pigs, and, uh, which, which, you know, the question that Randy brought up is like, why was there pigs, you know, inside of uh, the, this region uh, with Jewish people living there? But there was this lucrative pork market of the region, and when the freedom came to the man, the demons had to leave. You know, and, and I love this about this story because in the Torah, it says if you touch a dead pig, you're unclean. So Jesus is like, I'm going to take care of that. You don't even have to touch them. You know, I'm not only going to kill the pigs, I'm going to just wash them away for you. So they go over the, over the edge of the cliff. They drown in the river. And then Jesus, right away, he gets back in the boat. I mean, think about that, that ministry trip. You know, he doesn't go into a town. He doesn't go into a village. He goes across the lake through this storm, and he was okay going just for one man to be set free. Just for one to be set free. And, and I think about for us, it's like we so easily measure the impact by the numbers or, or by the scope of what happens, by how many people are affected. And, and yet for Jesus, it's like I'm on a mission, and one man's freedom is worth traversing the stormy seas. And, and so in Mark 4 and 5, he's laying out, you know, he's got power over nature. He's got power over the demons. And today we're going to look at Jesus as the one with power over sickness and power over death. And so in this passage in Mark, Mark does this almost like a sandwich story where he gives the, you know, the top layer of bread and he gives all the fillings and then he comes back to the bottom layer. And, and part of what he's doing is that he's creating this dramatic contrast between Jairus, a synagogue official, a man of much means, of much reputation, and a woman who has an issue of bleeding, who's very poor, has nothing to offer. And, and I think one of the things, I think there's a lot of things that, that means, but I think one of the things that Mark is highlighting is that Jesus is not motivated by procuring favors with those for those with means, and he's not deterred by those who have nothing to give in return. He is equal for all. And so the first daughter in Mark 5, verse 21, verse 22, Jesus crosses over. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and on seeing Jesus, he falls at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And Jesus went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. And so again, he's, he's just gotten back at the shore. He had left the day before at the end of Mark 4, and he had done these miracles in the region. He returns, and there's this crowd just waiting. I mean, they may have not even left, standing at the seashore, waiting for him to return. And in the midst of that, there's this man named Jairus. And it says that he was a synagogue official. And, and essentially, that means he's, he's not a Pharisee, he's not one of the scribes, but a synagogue official was responsible for the management of the synagogue. They would be in charge of kind of coordinating worship gatherings, they would make sure that the, the scrolls were ready at the right place, take care of the facilities, they'd clean the bathrooms, those kinds of things. Um, but, but because of that, as, as kind of this manager of the synagogue, everybody in the town would know him. And he most likely was present in Mark 3 when Jesus heals the man with a withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees turn against him. That's kind of that, that moment where the Pharisees all of a sudden determine that we're going to get rid of this man. And so we find Jairus, and he's, he's torn between this place of, 
I want to be on the good side of the Pharisees because I'm managing the synagogue. Everybody knows me. I've got this good reputation. And on the other side, I've got this, my daughter's dying. I've got this need that I cannot do anything about. So for him to come and fall at Jesus's feet is a massive statement. It's a statement of, of the deep need for his daughter's life, his fear for her life. It's a statement of his reverence for Jesus, the healer. I mean, for him to fall at Jesus' feet is saying, you're the greater, I'm the lesser. And so he comes. Jesus had this blooming reputation for his healing power, but it gained the ire of these Pharisees. So Jairus is just, he's just putting it all on the line. And, and the first point that I want to make this morning from this is that God will actually allow circumstances that bring us to a point of decision. I mean, it would have been much easier if a few days before, when Jesus was there, his daughter was probably already sick. It would have been much easier for Jesus to heal her then. But he allows circumstances to bring us to this point of decision. You think of the story of, of Lazarus, and they send word to Jesus, Lazarus, your friend is dying. And Jesus pauses and he waits. It's like, I, wanna, I want this to come to a climax. And how often in our lives, it's like, Lord, if you had just dealt with this at this point, it would have been so much easier. But I'm, I'm convinced that it's actually his goodness in wanting to bring us to this point where, where, where we're no longer okay with the status quo, where we're no longer okay with things just going on as they are, but we become desperate. Because one of the very few things that God cannot resist is a desperate, hungry person that comes to him. So it's as if he creates these contexts for hunger and desperation. In the story of Lazarus, he does it by waiting so that he can draw out from Mary something that will pull something out from him. Like it says in Psalms, that deep that would cry out to deep. And, and he's doing it again here with, with Jairus' daughter. He's looking and he's responding to a man who becomes desperate. How many of us, how many people, how many of us are willing to be pushed to a place where we can't get through it on our own? Where we can't get through it on our own? And so we see Jairus here. He earnestly begs Jesus to come and touch his daughter. He, he chooses to no longer remain a passive onlooker, to no longer be okay seeing other people get the breakthrough, seeing other people get the ministry. I mean, just to be very honest, there's been so many moments, even, even this past, in these three weeks, where it's like I'm in these ministry times and I'm seeing students get touched so incredibly deeply by the Lord. And, and I'm part of those ministry times, but there's moments where I just pause and I'm like, Lord, I don't wanna just look at somebody else getting touched and let that be enough. I don't wanna just look at other healings happen and say, that's fine, that's sufficient. I want to let that cause something in me to begin to stir and to groan and to ache and to reach for that for myself. And we find Jairus in that position. He did what any good father would do. He, he put it all on the line for his daughter. And then in verse 24, it says, Jesus went off with him. I love that. There's this whole crowd I mean, Jesus could touch hundreds of lives. His fame, his reputation could soar in the region. And yet he says, there's one before me that's, that's responding with desperate hunger. I'm going with the one. I'm, I'm going to leave the crowd behind, though they end up going with him. But I'm, I'm going I'm to put them behind me, and I'm going to go after that one. And, and I will say that the place where we most often will see the, the breakthroughs, the miracles, and the touches of God for the people is when we will go after the one. It's a, it's a famous uh, quote or, or lifestyle of Heidi Baker, where she says, go after the one. And, and so I want to ask you this morning, who is the one in your sphere? Who is the one in, in your family, in your community, at your workplace? Who is the one that Jesus says, if you would just go, go with them, I will show myself and who I am. I, I will show my power, my goodness, my kindness. Who is the one that he's asking you to reach out for? And so we find Jesus. He leaves with Jairus. The crowd ends up going with him, pressing in on him. 
And then we find the second daughter of the story, verse 25, a woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians, had spent all that she has and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. And so as Jesus goes with Jairus, the whole crowd goes with him and and they're pressing in on him. And in the midst of it comes this woman. She'd been bleeding. It's, It's essentially from the time that she began having her cycle, it never ended. She had this continual flow, this continual menstruation of blood for 12 years. I mean, number one, I'm not a woman, so I can't even imagine, you know, the the monthly thing, but 12 years of of the pain and the suffering and the worry, just that physical agony that she was in. And I think if, if it just been that, that would have been enough cause for her desperation. But on top of that, because of this issue, according to Leviticus chapter 15, she was unclean. Leviticus 15.25 says, if a woman has a discharge of blood, she is unclean. It goes on, it says she's unclean. The bed she sleeps on is unclean. The clothes she wears are unclean. Anything that touches her, anything she touches is unclean. And what that meant in that day is that number one, this woman could not be part of any religious gatherings. The, The very lifeline of her identity as a Jewish person was severed from her. She was not allowed to touch any of it. Number two, it meant that either she had never married or if she had, most often the husbands would divorce a wife like that. And and so most likely this woman was cut off from any social life. She's cut off from family. She can't work a job because for, for a single woman, it was most likely in someone's home serving. She's not welcome in any home. She has no economic stability. She has nothing left. It, it even goes further and it says everything, uh, she had spent everything that she had and was no better. And, and so she, in contrast to the little girl, she has no gyrus. She has nobody who's willing to intercede and go on her behalf to implore Jesus to touch her. At this point, she's on her own. It says in in verse 26, she had endured much at the hands of many physicians. Um, I, I remember one of our first years in China, I got really sick. It was in January. And, and we were in a city that was far enough south that you didn't need heat, but it's cement buildings. And this particular year, it was snowing and it was cold. And, and so I got this fever and we just could not kick it. I mean, I had a, a temperature of 104, 105 for several days. I'm in, the bed, I'm in bed with chills, sweating, all this stuff. So finally, I'm like, Carla, I, n- I need to go to the hospital. Like, I need to get something. And so there's a hospital a mile down the road. So we hop on our little electric scooter. And I don't know if she drove or if I drove, but somehow we, we got to the hospital. What's that? Carla drove. <laughs> and we get to this hospital and we go in. And uh, I was like, you know, I need to just go to the emergency room, get some fluids. And I, we get in there and they're like, oh, the, the, the room we use for the ER is under construction. So you got to go to this other room. I was like, okay, fine. So, I mean, I'm, I think they had me in a wheelchair at that point because I could barely walk. So, I'm, so we go to this other room and they're like, oh, we, we don't have a thermometer in here. We, you need to go find a thermometer in this other room. So they make us go out, like searching all over the hospital for this thermometer. We get back. They're like, oh yeah, you got a fever. I was like, yeah, I know. Um, so then they, they take me into this, this uh, communal IV room where you go up to the counter, you know, they, they put the IV in and then you just take the pole with the bag on it and you go find a chair to sit down. Um, and, and so I'm in this room and in China, there's this thought that you always need to have some fresh air. So they got the windows wide open. It's freezing. So they're like, you know, passing out blankets to people. I'm sitting there. I go through one bag of the IV. It's, it's maybe a couple hours. I go back, they're like, uh, it didn't really work. We're gonna have you do it again. So I do the second bag of IV. By that time, I'm like the only one left. And uh, the temperature came down enough that they're like, okay, you can go. And I went home and I didn't feel any better. You know, and I'm like, oh, all that. 
And, and so that's this woman times a thousand, you know, where she had gone to these physicians and, and I was looking into this and, and I want to read this to you. This is what a physician meant. This is one of the treatments for the issue of bleeding that they would do. It says in the Talmud, one remedy consisted of drinking a goblet of wine containing a powder compounded from rubber, alum, and garden crocuses. How many of you would like that? Another treatment consisted of a dose of Persian onions cooked in wine administered with the summons, arise out of your flow of blood, because I'm sure that the per Persian onion would do the trick. Other physicians prescribed sudden shock or the carry, this is my favorite, the carrying of the ash of an ostrich's egg in a certain cloth. What's that? I don't know. I don't know where they'd get it in that part of the world. Um, so imagine this woman, you know, she's got to carry this cloth with the ashes of an ostrich egg. She's like, this is not helping me. And, and, and by this point in time, she had spent everything she had and she was, she was worse for it. She was despised, unclean, solitary woman. And I think about that. And I think about how often so many people find themselves in this place where, where they, you know, we read this list and we chuckle. But when it comes to a heart that is wounded, that is hurting, you know, we seek these remedies, these cures, whether it's trying to numb the pain with entertainment, trying to, to fill that, that broken place with, it, with a vibrant social life, trying to, you know, turning to sin to distract and, and, and bring a momentary shift of, of focus. And at the end of the day, how many people have spent everything they have and they're none the better? They've given everything, their strength, their, their, their purity, their vibrancy, and they're none the better because of it. But I read this, it's like there is good news for those in that place because Jesus is on a throne. Because Jesus is on a throne, there's not hopelessness for them. Nobody is incurable and nobody is hopeless. And, and we see in this story that when our human means comes to an end, there's an opportunity for Jesus to show himself. And for this woman, her means had come to an end. And she could have sat there hearing that there's a healer in the midst. And, and she had one of several choices. Number one, she could have gotten very offended. How come he's doing this for all these other people, but not for me? How come he's touching these people and he's healing withered hands and he's doing, he's opening blind eyes and deaf ears, but he doesn't see me. What kind of healer is this, this cold-hearted man? I think that's one of the things Jesus is mentioning in, I think it's Matthew 11, when John's disciples go to Jesus and they say, hey, are you the one or is there another coming? Because John's not in such a good place right now. He's in prison. And Jesus says to him, go back and tell him the blind eyes are open, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the gospel is preached to the poor and blessed is he who is not offended at me. And, and so there's this crossroads. And I think he brings us to this again intentionally where we have the, the choice. Am I going to choose offense because of what I have not yet received from him while I see him doing this for other people? Or am I going to allow that to stir something in me that produces a response of hunger to reach even further for him and what he has? So she could have taken offense. She, she could have just become complacent said, I'm happy for them, but this is just my lot. You know, I was made to suffer. This is God's will for me. Or she could have chosen that place that Jesus calls poor in spirit. It says, I see what's available. I've heard the stories and I must respond. I'm, I'm going to throw my dependency and move beyond what seems safe, what seems familiar, what seems comfortable. I, I believe we're in that moment right now. That's why we've continually said as we've gathered as the bridge that we're not going back to the way things were. And that doesn't just refer to the way that we structure our time together, but that refers to the posture of our heart, walking as a follower of Jesus, being content with this safe and easy and nice Christianity. We're, we're wanting to be ones as a community, as individuals, as families that say we're at this crossroads and we're not okay just running back to something that might feel like an anchor, but really is not. We're going to allow this to provoke us to a response and a dependency that looks like the end of ourself and the more of God. 
And so it says of her, after hearing about Jesus, she came. She heard there was an invitation and she responded. And I want to just say, you know, she, she heard and came and touched him. If, if you're like, I just am hearing right now, God say, come and touch me. Feel free to respond. Feel free to check out. Don't listen to anything else. And just, just reach for him this morning. I mean, if that's all that you hear, the invitation is there. Reach for him. In verse 27, she heard about Jesus. She came up in the crowd behind him and she touched his cloak. You know, she, she still had this posture of fear. I love this. Like Jesus was not, he, he didn't stop the healing or the miracle because she was afraid. You know, she still had this posture like, I don't want to bother the teacher. I'm not really worth bothering this man. But I believe that if I touch, you know, the fringe of the bottom of his robe, that I can get my healing. I can just quietly fade away and, and go on with life. She said, I just need to touch the hem. And so I just imagine, you know, it says there's crowds. There's probably hundreds, if not thousands of people. Because the number, that whenever the crowd is numbered, it's in the thousands. So there's this massive crowd. And you see this woman just fighting her way, pushing through people, refusing to be denied. Knowing that I'm touching so many people that if they knew who I was right now, they'd probably push me over and start kicking me for making them unclean. But she's like, I'm desperate enough to go that way. And so she pushes through the crowd. She responded what she had heard and dared to believe it was for her too, saying it's either me healed or I'm going to make a rabbi unclean for the day. But one way or another, we're going together. <laughs> He's either picking me up or we're both going down. And so she touches him and it says immediately that the bleeding stopped and she was healed. I love that. Mark actually highlights that. If you go through and look 27 times in the book of Mark, he uses this word that's translated immediately to show that one touch has an instant effect, whether or not we see it or recognize it. If we touch him just a little bit, then our emotions, our mind, our body, our finances, our situations can be shifted just with the littlest touch of the hem of his garment. She touches him and she's healed. She says in verse 28, for she thought if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Verse 29, immediately the flow of her blood was dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Now, the other thing I want to just quickly say is like what this woman was doing was against the law, essentially. You know, she, she had an illegal reach, an illegal prayer in her heart. And I'm, I'm taking that phrase from a friend of ours, Bob Sorge this idea of an illegal prayer. You know, the, the, the picture that Jesus gives of it is found in Luke 11, where he tells the story of, of a man who goes to his friend's house at midnight to get food for a visitor who's just come to him. And he knocks and the man says, it's late, I'm in bed, don't bother me, go away. But he keeps knocking, he keeps knocking, he keeps knocking. And the point of that whole parable, Jesus says, even though he will not get up and give it to him because it's his friend, because of his persistence, he will give him as much as he has need of. There's, there's a place in God's heart that only persistence, only daring to ask for those illegal prayers will procure what he longs to receive and what he longs to show in his, in his nature and in his kingdom. Going on with this story, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reference verse 34 because Jesus said, your faith has made you well. You know, I, I think about this miracle. It's like, what did Jesus do to heal this woman? He didn't do anything. Jesus didn't do anything. This woman's faith had drawn forth the power for her healing. It, it wasn't just her. It wasn't enough for her to say, I believe Jesus is the healer. Her faith was not believing intellectually in who this man was. That was part of it. And for her, that was the start of it. But her faith looked like, I'm going to respond to that truth and throw myself wholeheartedly into alignment with what that truth says. I mean, that's the definition of faith. 
is, is aligning and ordering our lives and our actions and our relationships with the truth about what God says and who he is. And in that place, you know, it wasn't just this random, you know, like there was this force field of power around Jesus. So all I got to do is, you know, everybody's bumping into him and automatically they're healed. It, it wasn't that at all. But it was her reaching and touching a man who had such an intimate connection with the Father that the Father saw that touch, released the power through Jesus without him even being aware until it happened. So much so that he said, I felt power going from me. Who touched me? I mean, it was this woman's faith coupled with a lifestyle of oneness with the Father and the Father's desire to heal her that brought forth this miracle. Think about that. She made a demand on Jesus that pulled on lifestyle of intimacy without him even knowing it. I mean, I think about both sides of that. Imagine living in that way, where it's like people can make demands on your lifestyle of intimacy with the Father so that you're not even part of the equation of God touching and moving in their life. Now, that's half of it. The other half being this woman and, and the level of faith that drew forth the miracle from Jesus. And I think about that, and I think, how many times do we say, when God's ready, he'll do it? When God's ready, if, if it were his will, he would release the breakthrough. He would change the circumstance. He would, he would give the job where it's needed. He would bring the healing where it's needed. But in this story, we see God saying, no. It is in my heart. I long for this, but I want you to be part of the equation. I want you to reach out for this. I want you to touch me. No matter how inconvenient, no matter what the opposition may be telling you, no matter the shame that may be pushing you back, I want you to reach through all of that and touch me. We are the ones he's invited to touch. That man who's at the right hand ever making intercession for us. And our reach toward him makes a difference. Think about that. Our reach as, as ones who are made of dust of the earth, our reach makes a difference to him. It moves him because he wants us part of the equation. Then we get down to, I'm going to jump to verse 34. So, that, so Jesus looks around. He says, who's touching me? There's many people touching him. It's just, actually, I want to show you this. It says, verse 31, his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? I imagine that was probably Peter that said that, <laughs> but maybe Mark was just being nice. But they're like, what do you mean who touched you? What do you mean? And, and so the woman touches Jesus. He feels the power going out from him and it says he stops. He pauses. Now remember the context, this synagogue official is like, Jesus, we gotta get there right now. My daughter's dying. And it says, Jesus pauses. And as I was, I was just thinking about that recently, I was like thinking through in my life when I felt what Jairus must have been feeling. I've never had a child on, our death, on a deathbed. But I was thinking back to uh, the day that we left China three years ago. And I mean, the fact of leaving a country after seven years was emotional enough and, and all this stuff. So we had lined up a driver, a Chinese man that I had hired before, um, and we had set the time for 12.30 that he was going to come pick us up. We're going to load our stuff. So we're at the apartment, you know, just kind of waiting for him to show up. It's 12.30. Okay, he's not here. That's okay. You know, it gets to be 12.45. I'm like, Okay, I gave, our, I gave us about an hour buffer. We're still okay. We still have the 45-minute buffer. You know, it gets to be 1 o'clock, and now I'm starting to worry. I'm starting to think, where is this guy? Like, we cannot miss these flights. Um, and so I, I text him. No answer. You know, so I call him. No answer. Now it's getting to be about 1.10. I'm like, the window's shrinking. The time's getting shorter. And finally, at about 1.15, he calls me. It's like, where are you? He's like, oh, I just woke up. Like, you just woke up? Like, you were supposed to be here 45 minutes ago. He's like, okay, I'll be, I'll be right there. You know, and, and, it, and it took about 15 minutes for him to come, which meant that we had no buffer. That meant that it's a 45-minute drive. We're going to get there at the 45-minute cutoff time. And, and knowing this guy, he had driven us before. I'm like, 
do you mind if I drive today? So he gave me the keys. I drive. We had all of our luggage in one van and all of us in the other van. I'm driving the front van, you know, and I'm having to keep slowing down for the second van and then going ahead. And finally, we're half a mile out from the airport. And the other van's right there. I'm like, we're good. So I, you know, I go. I'm like, we're going to get in. We pull up to the departure area and then we wait and we wait. It's like, where's the other van? And I tell him, I was like, where's the other driver? Call him. He's like, I don't have his number. I'm like, how do you not have his number? He's like, oh, I called someone else and they called him and sent him. I was like, call the other person. And, and you know, it's just this scramble. And I will never do this again, but we had put our passports in the other van. So we can't, I mean, we can't do anything. And we're sitting there thinking, this other driver just took off with all of our earthly possessions. Everything we owned was in that van. Our 10 suitcases, backpacks. Long story short, he was parked underneath in the parking garage. It was a mess. We got on the flight. But just that, that you know, we've all experienced those moments where it's like, I don't have a second to lose. If, if we delay another second, something very bad is going to happen. It's going to be very costly. And, we've, and I could just imagine Jairus in that place. He's like, Jesus, we cannot delay. But one of the things I so love about Jesus that he's not in a hurry. He's not worried about the timing the way that we are. If, if things happen the way we think they should and the timing we think they should. And so he pauses, he says, who touched me? And, and, and I believe the reason he did this was because he was not satisfied with a mere physical healing. I mean, if the story ended, the woman shrinking back, you know, the whole trajectory of her life has changed. She can now join social circles and get a job and all these things. But Jesus was after something deeper. And we see that in verse 34. He sees the woman. She comes up and tells him everything. In verse 34, he says, daughter. And, and I believe that that one word brought more healing to her than the physical power that came into her body. I mean, imagine this one who had been an outcast for 12 years, unmarriable, no children, potentially no family left. And he says, daughter. He's like, you have seen my power. You've known my power. Now I want you to see my heart. Because the, the revelation of my heart for you has eternal effect in a way far beyond the physical healing that you just received. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And, and so as I read this, it's like, okay, we see the power to heal, but the revelation of Jesus in this story, in this healing, is that he is the image of the Father. It says this in John 14, 9. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Hebrews 1.3, he is the exact representation of the Father's glory and the exact image of his nature. He shows us exactly what God is like. And in this story, we see a God who is not only one that can speak a word and calm the sea. He's not only one that can cast demons out of a man and send a herd of pigs over a cliff. He's not only the one who can do these external physical miracles and wonders, but they point to the heart that says, I am your father. And I just imagine that woman in that moment saying, it's been so long since anyone's spoken to me like that. It's been so long since I've felt the embrace of a father who cared about me. It's been so long since I've felt like I had a place where I belonged and was safe and secure. Jesus knew that it was not just a physical need that she had, but that it was a, a restoring of her very identity. And just as we, as we come to an end this morning, Zion, I'm gonna have you come back up and play. Now, I, I wanna lean into this this morning. And, and even just with the question, what does he wanna say? What's the one word that he wants to say? to you. I'm going to finish this, this uh, healing sandwich 
um, so to speak. It says in verse 35, while he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official and they said, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter has died. And so the news comes and imagine Jairus again in that moment thinking, you know, the storm we read about in Mark 4, trying to make its way into the depths of Jairus. And Jesus says to him, Jairus, no, don't let that storm get you. Don't look at the waves. Don't look at what you're hearing. Look at me. Do not be afraid. Only believe. Keep your eyes on me. Don't stop reaching. Don't give up on the storyline that will contain the goodness of God manifested in your life. Don't give up on what you gave yourself for. Don't give up on that place of throwing yourself at my feet, believing that I had something you needed and crying out for your daughter. Don't lose that, Jairus. Don't lose that. And so they go to the house. And when they get there, the girl's dead. The mourners are there. You know, back in that day, they'd hire people to come and and to weep and to wail. Why would you ever give somebody money to come and just fill your house with wailing? (laughs) And Jairus being an official, a manager of the synagogue, most likely had this large crowd there. So they're weeping, they're wailing. He's paying them to do it. There's real pain of family and neighbors. Then Jesus says, why this commotion and weeping? The child has not died, but is asleep. The child has not died, but is asleep. They begin mocking him. They begin ridiculing him. If I'm Jairus, I'm saying, hey, I want my money back. You're laughing now. You're not supposed to be doing that. They begin mocking and ridiculing Jesus because they knew death when they saw it. But that's all that they saw. I mean, the fact of the matter was this girl is dead. The fact of the matter of of many of our lives and the lives of those we know and love is that there are very painful realities There's very real brokenness. There's very real suffering and loss and lack and need. But the truth is beyond that. You see, there's an important distinction between what is a fact and what is truth. The fact is simply the natural conditions. I don't think Jesus would have denied that this girl has no pulse, that she's not breathing. But the truth is looking beyond that and looking and seeing what is in God's heart because that's a reality that's higher than the reality that I'm in. And just like those people were there mourning and living in this this deep reality of the death, like they're carrying the fragrance of death because we carry the fragrance of the reality that we're most rooted in. If we're most rooted in the pain and the loss and the struggle, we carry that fragrance. But if we're rooted in the daring to believe that Jesus has something beyond that, something of life and goodness and healing and restoration, then we bring that with us into the room. And so it says that Jesus, he he puts them all out. verse 40. Um, I'm not going to dig into this, but that Greek word there, he ekbalos them. <laughs> if you guys know Lou Angle, you know there's that, that word ekbalo has a force to it. He gets rid of every doubt, everything that would be filled with unbelief and be focused on the death. And it says he takes the girl by the hand. Again, he's touching a dead person. You know, this one is seven days unclean according to Numbers 19. But this is another instance in these chapters that show Jesus is undeterred, unafraid of the unclean places and the brokenness of our lives. He's just not afraid of it. He's not afraid of our struggles. He's not afraid of our our addictions, the way that we're seeking to appease pain and need. He's not afraid of it. And so he takes this girl's hand And he speaks this phrase in Aramaic, the the language that he spoke with his friends there. He says, Talitha Kumi. And most commentators believe that this was a phrase that the girl's father or mother would say to her in the morning. It's this tender, compassionate phrase of, of delight and love. 
little girl, it's time to get up. You know, it's that phrase when you walk into your kids' rooms and, you know, they're going to be late for school, but you see them laying there and it's just like, oh, I love you so much. I don't want to wake you. You just go and, you, you know, you caress their face. You say, hey, sweetie, it's time to get up. Jesus says that to this girl, Talitha Kumi. Little girl, it's time to get up. Again, immediately she gets up. She begins to walk. They're astounded. They're filled with awe. And then I love this. You know, Jesus says, get her some food. Go get her the bacon and the eggs. No, no bacon. No bacon. Get her some food. Why does he say that? Because she's been sick for days. She hasn't eaten. Like he is so tender and compassionate as a father that he's not just like, let me come in and do this big show, wake her up, yeah. He's like, little girl, it's time to get up. Let's get you some food. Let's fill you up. Let's touch you. I want to finish in, in Psalm 44 this morning. There's a, there's a word used in both the, the plea of Jairus and the healing of the woman with bleeding. And, it, and both of them are a form of the word sozo. Jesus says to the woman, your faith has healed you. She, she had been physically healed, but now he's saying your faith has sozoed you, which carries a much more holistic sense of restoration. One of the definitions of this word is deliverance from the enemies of life that threaten authentic existence. I, I'm delivering you from those things that would keep you from existing as you were made to, as a daughter, as a son of mine. I'm coming against with a, with a vengeance, those enemies that threaten authentic existence in your life. And the Old Testament picture of this is in Psalm 44. So I want to read this and then just, just take a few minutes to pray together. Psalm 44, 1 through 8. Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us the work that you did in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations. Then you planted them. You afflicted the peoples. Then you spread them abroad. For by their own sword, they did not possess the land and their own arm did not save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence, for you favored them. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you, we will push back our adversaries. Through your name, we will trample down those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. But you have saved us from our adversaries. You have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted all day long, and we will give thanks to your name forever. I can imagine, this is totally made up, but just imagine if the next Saturday or Friday night in the synagogue, if the reading of the Torah was this, and that woman with the issue of blood in the synagogue for the first time hears this. Like I'm, I'm convinced at some point or another, Jesus said, this is your story. This is your testimony, that your own hand couldn't do it, that your own sword couldn't push back the enemy, but it was my right hand, my arm, the light of my presence because I favored you, because I delighted in you. Let's stand together. take a minute and, and direct us before the Father this morning. For some of us in this room, we need to hear him speak over us, daughter or son. For some of us, it's, it's been so long since we've heard him say our name with the affection and tenderness of a good daddy, of an Abba, For some of us, we've looked at him and we've recognized the power. We've recognized the miracles. We've recognized the provision. 
but we've yet to hear the voice of our Father. And for those of you who are in that place, let the the response, the invitation and the response for you be just to ask Him, Father, what do you think of me? Father, what do you say about me? Father, what's in your heart for me? For some of us, we've just walked through some storms, some places that were so rocky and shaky, or or even in the midst of it still, just that swirl of pain, of death, of suffering, brokenness. And we need to lift our eyes again We need to hear him say, don't stop looking at me. Don't take your eyes off of me. Keep them locked in with my gaze. I will carry you through this. I will pull you through this. Some of you just need to say, Jesus, pull me through this. Jesus, help. That's one of the most powerful prayers, one of the prayers that most moves his heart, help. If you're in that place, just lift the gaze of the eyes of your heart. Just in your own words, just say, Jesus, I choose again to look to you. I choose again to trust you. That though all I see is storm and suffering and brokenness and death, I choose to trust you. That you have the way out. You have the way forward. For some of us, we need to move beyond just the bumping into Jesus, the casual brushing up against him and move to a place where we're actually reaching to touch him, reaching to touch him. It says that that woman heard and she came. Some of you have had much hearing. He's saying, now will you come? Will you allow yourself to be provoked that you do not have all you need, that you are not sufficient for the issues you're facing, the relational challenges you're trying to navigate, the uncertainty that's in front of you, the transitions you're walking through? Will you acknowledge that you are not sufficient? Because when you do, when you enter that place of humility and dependency, I cannot resist joining you in that place. I am the God who draws near to the humble. To those who wait, I will not put you to shame. And if you're in that place, the question is, what invitation has he given that he's now waiting for your response? Some of us this morning just need to ask that that question that I mentioned at the beginning, who is this man? All of us need to ask that. Who is this man? Lord, we throw off everything we've thought that we knew, every truth and idea and assertion about who you are that has made us complacent, that has caused our hearts to grow lukewarm and passive in reaching for the knowledge of who you are. Who are you, Jesus? Who is this man that does these things? We want to know you, Jesus. And then for some, we need to look around and we need to see who are the unclean in our midst. Who are those that are too wounded by the church, too ashamed because of their past, or even their present and what they've done. Those who are too afraid to ask for help, for healing, for somebody to just be with them and listen to their story. Who are those around us? And as he shows you, I wanna challenge you to make a resolution in your heart that I will go to that one I will pray and I will seek a way this week 
connect and have conversation with them, to listen to them and to serve them. And so we come before you today, Jesus. And I ask you that you would speak over us this morning. Son, daughter, that you would untangle the web of identities that we've given ourselves and that others have placed upon us and labeled us with. That you would breathe away just those cobwebs that confuse and, and distract us. As for a release of your spirit right now, you'd release your spirit with that word, son, daughter. That you'd speak it over us this morning, son, daughter. That this would be our foundation, our starting point for reaching for more of you for reaching in faith, daring to trust, daring to believe that you are good and able and desiring to do what we cannot do. Release the word that washes away the pain and brokenness, even from our own childhood, from our own earthly fathers and mothers. Release the voice that calls us home, that invites us home, let us see a father that runs after us, that hikes up his robe, taking on our shame, and runs after us to embrace us, to cover us, to restore us. Just turn your hearts to him in this moment. Father, here I am. Come run to your father. Here I am. Oh, son, Come and love on me, Father. Come and speak my name. God, I ask you for each person in here that they'd hear you speak their name. And that that word, that one word, would be the one that quiets the storm pushes back every enemy against our true identity and existence in you. Let's just wait another minute. Father, come and touch us in this place. someone agree with you in prayer. We're going to have space for that. I'm just going to keep going. Just keep singing this. What I'd like to do is just say a prayer and we'll wrap up. But then we're just going to keep this atmosphere for, for a few more minutes. For those that are receiving, those that want to receive prayer. to you this morning. We reach for one touch of your garment. Daring to believe that you not only have the power, but the heart 
the goodness and the kindness to heal us. So Father, I ask for each person, Lord, that as we go, that you would touch us, that you'd restore, and that you would lead us to those in need of a touch from you, in Jesus' name. Thank you for coming. Again, if you want to receive prayer, if you want to stay, we'll keep the worship going for a few minutes. Otherwise, you're dismissed. Go fellowship, grab another donut. And thank you for joining us today.